Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest, long time coming, uh, Mr. John August, incredibly accomplished uh, screenwriter of such films as Go, Big Fish, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Corpse Bride. Screenwriter, uh, podcast host of Script Notes with Craig Mazin, who's been a guest on here and is a longtime friend of mine and the show. And uh, John has recently, I mean, also, we'll get into this, has built apps and tons of software for screenwriters to use um, and has now become successfully in a big way a uh, an author of children's books uh, one in particular the beginning of a series yes and the book is called Arlo Finch in the Valley of Fire uh, which is just out now and I know you're on a whirlwind uh, tour of elementary schools because you you threatened to bring the flu to me from the elementary schools Brian Kaufman, I've been hanging out with hundreds of kids. I, I counted up to be a total of 3,000 kids I'll see on this trip. So uh, I bet some of them have germs just for you. Uh, Purell, are you using it or you do, not I, believe, do you not believe in Purell? So I believe in Purell. It also dries out your hands horribly. And so I, you get this sort of like cracking knuckles and such. But uh, I also just believe in soap and water. So after shaking hands, I'm always a guy who like excuses myself to the restroom and, and washes thoroughly. Yeah, because if, if you bring the um, Purell to the elementary schools, then you have to bring the hand cream, oh, yeah. and then you get in a lot. It's just, I, I'm flying carry-on, so that, that's more liquids, more level three, you know, three ounce. Way too like. much, way too much of art. I want to, I want to jump into it. I mean, a lot of people who listen to this show also listen to Script Notes, which is incredible. You know, quite a different podcast, really focused directly on screenwriters yeah. and the issues that affect screenwriters. But um, and I, it's a great podcast. I love it. Sometimes uh, I feel like, um, in the interest of answering the question or serving the issue of the day, you don't really go into autobiography that much on that show. For sure. And so uh, I have some questions that I think we'll, we'll get to some of the autobiographical stuff, how John August becomes John August. And, but I want to start now. And I, I want to say, you get so much done. It's like incredibly impressive to me. It's a question people ask me all the time, but I don't think I get as much done as you do. And so I wonder if you could just run through your daily routine, like how you manage your time and effort, and then how you prime yourself or set yourself up to do the creative stuff. On a daily basis, you know, I'm getting up, I'm you know having breakfast, I'm getting my daughter off to school, and then it's just a matter of like, how do I use those next eight hours of my day? And if I'm in the middle of a book, then I'm focused on that book, which is great. And so part of the joy of writing a book was that that was my number one priority for months at a time, which was so unusual. But generally, there's a bunch of different projects that are sort of competing for my attention. And I have to figure out, like, what is the most crucial thing to do right now? And so sometimes that is, you know, that phone call or preparing for the speech or some other task that's right in front of me. You know, I do use the kind of classic uh, OmniFocus, that kind of getting things done approach, OmniFocus, the app. Um, I, I use that stuff, but also I just rely on, you know, knowing in general what stuff has to get done over the course of this day, this week, and try to prioritize that way. How do you use that app for as a professional screenwriter who also has a company that builds apps, children's book author, podcast host, but you also um, do live podcast dates. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to say, well, I pick what's most important, but a lot of people have a real problem deciding what's most important. So I use OmniFocus as just the the inbox for all that stuff, just so you're not holding it in my head so much. And so if something needs to get done, I'll try to throw it in there. It's good for things that take about 20 minutes or less. For bigger projects, like write the book, write chapter seven. <laughs> like it's not useful for that. If something's going to yeah. take me like most of a day to do, then it doesn't belong in there. And you'll see people who talk about like, oh, then you break it into smaller little chunks or like, you know, you're going to do this thing. That doesn't really help for me. So it doesn't help me for, for like big writing projects. But it helps me for like the small little things where like I have to remember to, to email that guy back at Apple about this one thing. Sure. Or if there's a, I'm on the WJ board now, so if I need to uh, follow up with somebody about some aspect of this committee, then like I'll put that stuff in there. But I won't put the big like you know my life writing stuff in there because it just doesn't fit. And then will you not deal with like I know Derek has certain hours of the day mm -hmm. Derek has where he just won't deal with anything but the writing. Yeah. That's or it's his own time to sort of do that. For me, early, early in the morning, I'm journaling and I'm meditating and that gets me set up and then I want to write as soon thereafter yeah. as I can. Do you have any kind of routine like that or can it flip based on what your number one interest is at the time? If I'm in like full book mode or full writing mode on a script, then that morning is really crucial time for me to write. And I tend to write in sprints and so 
Often I'll even announce on Twitter, like, I'm starting a writing sprint at the top of the hour. And then for 60 minutes, I will do nothing but write. I will close Twitter. I'll close everything else off. I won't Google a word. If I'm confused about the definition of a word, I won't Google it then. I'll just I'll plow through and just try to get as many words done as possible. Usually as screenwriters, we're only thinking about scenes. We're thinking about pages. We're thinking about getting to the end of an act. Um, but with a book, it really is about words. And it's about how many words I can generate in a day. And if I can get a 1,000 words done in a day, then I'll finish a book. If I can't, then it's much harder to finish a book. And so it's when you say writing, you mean not thinking. Not thinking. I mean uh, When you to say, I'm going to do 60 minutes of writing, yes. you mean your hands are moving. Because the, you know, the, the, the question of the difficult blocked writer or the difficult moments in, in writing, but when you say you're writing like that, you mean... I mean, hands on the keyboard, words are being generated. If I, that's... To me, that's that's writing. Yes, the process of writing is the whole, it's the brainstorming, it's the revisions, it's everything else. But when I'm saying writing, I really mean generation of new material um, that I can see coming up on my screen in front of me. Are you good at waiving the need for quality control during that period of an hour? Are you comfortable saying to yourself, fuck, even if I'm veering, I'm going to keep going otherwise i'm going to feel the inertia win i will i will suspend a little bit of quality control if i feel it's in the service of like getting through to this moment or, or i know that in pushing forward i'll explore something else so i'll happily skip over a little part if i don't know how to do it and so uh i use highlighters to my own out for doing stuff and that's just like an equal sign and makes a little note saying, okay, come back. It's like a synopsis. What's that one called? So it's called a synopsis. It's an equal sign. And Highlander? So, you, you said... I, Highland is the app I, I right. write everything in. Yes. And, and, uh, and for that, if you want to leave just like a little like, note to yourself, it's just an equal sign. So I'll just like, I'll block out sort of what the things are in general. Usually in scenes for screenwriting or for chapters, I will, as I start writing, just sort of beat out the things that are going to happen in it. And with that, I have some outline of how to get through stuff. But if I get really hung up on a place, I'll skip over it and just work on the next thing. And that's been something I've been doing since the very first days of screenwriting is that we don't tend to, you know, shoot movies in order. We don't tend to um, edit really in order. We just, we, we work on the thing that is on the schedule for the day. And so I'll happily write different stuff from different parts of the script. And I know that they'll ultimately fit together. Yeah, that's really great if you can do that and when yeah. you can do that. I have a hard time doing that from the beginning. There are moments in a screenplay mm -hmm. or a teleplay when I can do yeah. that. So you're not like Scott Frank and I talked about how neither of us can move forward. I can't do an editing either, really, um, until the first ten minutes are right. Or right. In, in editing ten minutes, in writing, let's say the first twenty pages of a screenplay or fifteen pages of a teleplay, they have to invite me in in a way that I understand mm -hmm. before I can do the rest. Do you not have anything like that? Like if you the beginning's giving you a hard time, you could jump right to a middle section. I would say. You are correct in that that first 10 pages, that first 15 pages where you really feel like this is the world, this is the character, this is the journey we're on, is really crucial, especially for the first thing. So if I'm sure if you're working on another script for your TV show, you could hop in the middle of that because you know those characters, you know that world. First script, yes, that's, that first 10 pages is crucial. I think back to um, the first 10 pages of Big Fish, and that was probably the most classically you know, pull the page out of the typewriter, crumple it up, and it fills <laughs> up a whole trash can. Because trying to find a way to set up all the things I knew. Yeah, I that world building is impossible. It was nuts. And so you have, you know, multiple voiceovers. You have an unreliable narrator. You have a fantastical past. You have a realistic present. You have two protagonists. Uh, it's, there was just so much to build. And so that, I, I didn't feel comfortable writing much of the script until I could get those first 10 pages working right. Yeah, even within an episode of our show, uh, even in an episode of our show, I have to know the first 10 I, uh, I because it, it gets the tone of that individual okay. for me and yeah. everyone's that's why I'm always interested in everybody else's process yeah. because it's my own I think that's my weird quirk I I need to feel like okay I, I understand how we're telling the story of this you know um, this episode of this longer well story. you're talking about the tone because like you know I've done a lot of musicals and for for me that it really is you have to have your welcome to the world song and you have to have your I want song and unless you have those two songs or yeah. sense of those two songs even if you're sure. going to end up rewriting those two songs you have to get the characters singing in their own voice about what it is that they want and what their journey is going to be that is a great analogy you have to get the characters singing in their own voice I talk about tone a lot and that's a great way to think about it you have to find that um, unique form of expression for the world of the show and then 
for the individual people within the show. And then you can kind of um, roll. So just go a little more into the the day thing, because like you just said, I like write a a lot of musicals. I mean, you, um, so is that, do you go to an office? I do. So um, in Los Angeles, my office is literally at this room over the garage. And so I'm there usually about 8.30 in the morning. My assistant comes in at nine. I'm usually writing for that first hour or two. Uh, then I'll come downstairs. I'll talk with her about sort of what is going to be on the schedule for the day, if there's stuff that needs to really get done. Um, I have a great assistant, and she's been really good at sort of taking some stuff off my plate. So for the podcast, the podcast I do with Craig is basically almost real time. And so it's 20 minutes of prep. It's an hour of recording. And then it's almost all in Megan's and our um, editor Matthew's hands. Um, but for other things, for scheduling, she's the one who sort of keeps me on track and sort of keeps the balls in the air. Um, so, but I try to like, I don't go down, I don't sort of engage with her until I'm sort of done with a big chunk of writing in the morning. And is your husband managing your household more? He's, yeah, he's more doing that stuff. Um, this last year, we were living in Paris for the year. And so it was the same general situation, except that like, rather than going off the office, I was literally taking like 10 steps over into this other room and, uh, and just closing the door. And just, and, and but I'm saying your discipline then, yeah, like I don't, Amy I don't, and I would have, a, Amy and I, we can write on the weekends, we'll write yeah. at, at home together. Yeah. Like I'll be on the couch and she'll go into one of the kids' rooms and write. But I think all day it would be hard not to just be like, oh, I want to tell you, because I'm easily distractible. Oh, yeah. Somehow you're not easily distractible. I'm not as distractible. And so if I'm, also if I'm in the middle of a sprint, that's great. But then when I'm done with a sprint, when I'm done with that hour, I will stand up, I will move around, I'll do something else. And so, you know, the same way I'm coming downstairs just to talk to Megan, um, in Paris, I would go and like do the dishes or, or, or you know, start the laundry. I, I would find some other thing to do just so I'm not in that writing work mode and for a while. do you not return calls and stuff in the morning? Do you have a set time that you return calls? And by calls, I mean emails. Emails, I mean, yeah. Re- returning whatever. Uh, no one calls in, anymore. No, no one calls. There, there are no phone calls. Yes. Uh, we had three lines, telephone lines going into the house, and like we don't use them anymore. It's, now it's there crazy. are none? No. There's still a line, but it's, it's, it's rarely used. When the phone rings, it's such an interruption these days. Like, who would dare, you know, call me on the phone? Uh, yeah, I try to get all my emails kind of done in chunks and not be obsessed with it. And for... The important stuff, which is like stuff for my team, so my assistant, my coder, my designer, all that stuff is done on Slack, and it's just a much more sane system, so I'm not searching through a bunch of stuff. And then, so I also walk my daughter, to, other than when we're shooting the show, there, um, the days that I have an early call, it's it's hard, but I basically have walked yeah. my daughter to school every day of her life from whatever, third grade or, or whenever she started going to a school that was near enough yeah. to our house to walk her. But then at the end of the day, so at the end of the day, if I were writing really at home and then she came home or Sammy, my son has been now at college for a long time, so it's different. But do you get, do you then come out and have time with her or do you, are you able to be like, I'm working, yeah, I'll I'm, see I'm you in a few hours. I'm basically working until yeah. six o'clock. That's, so that, that's, that's, that's just sort of, you know, 8.30 to 6 is really work time. And so I'll come in for some part of it. I might come in to like, you know, grab a snack and I'll say hi then, but I'm still really on the clock for me until six. And so my daughter knows not to bug me in a significant way until then. She might come out and say hi. She might yeah, want sure. to talk to make it better. Whatever. Like, she needs you. It's different. Yeah, yeah but it's different. Yes. Yeah. But um, uh, I'm still working. Yes. And um, and then at six, you're done? At six, I'm done. At six, I walk into the house and I'm usually done, done. Unless I'm really behind on something and then I need to go and do more writing after dinner, I'm done at six. And are you able to then really leave all of it behind you? And like then you engage, you're with your family? Then you're like with your family? I think I'm fully engaged with family, you know, after six. There's very little that I, I would be doing again. I'm, I'm not re- returning a lot of emails at night. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing much at night other than hanging out with the family. I'm bad at all that. I'm sorry. I will go well, be with the family, but I, and, and like, a, you know, it's my fa- favorite thing. I mean, people who listen to this show know how I feel about my family and, and the ways in which we interact, but I am. It's hard to leave the thing behind. I mean, I guess it, it's especially if I'm in a thorny part of something I'm writing or trying to solve an editorial problem. It will just weigh. It will weigh on me. Well, some. see, here's the difference, though. It's like you're trying to do a TV show, and and part of why I've resisted doing TV shows is exactly that that you, you're just never done. There's there's always there's a thousand decisions, and you can't even make all the decisions because it's moving at you so quickly. And so the same time you are trying to write that episode, you have an episode shooting, you're trying to post an episode, you're dealing with a casting crisis, there's there's always too much for you to do. And even though I do a lot, um, I don't have to do it as deeply or as in as much of a crisis mode as you are constantly in. Yeah, I love every all that stuff. I love it, right? That's yeah. why I'm happy doing it. I was thinking our, our careers are sort of in certain ways parallel um, in terms of timing. Mm-hmm. Like um, uh, Rounders was came out in 98 and Go came out in 99. Yeah. 
uh, each of our first movies, and they each announced us in to to the movie business in a, a really similar yeah, kind of a way. And then we made our first TV pilots at the exact same time for the exact same network. What was your TV? Neither pilot? one went. Yeah. I made Street Lawyer, and you made Alaska yeah. at like within a month of one another. Oh no! Here's the difference, though. I made my first pilot before that because I made a fi- pilot for the WB called DC, and so I shot a I shot a series called which was DC, first uh, DC. Oh, I thought that Alaska was first. Now, Alaska was shot as a pilot for ABC. That was a couple of years later. but Like in 2002, right? Or so, yeah, but so, no, I did my first pilot, though, in 2000, okay. and it was a disaster. It was, it was actually, um, you know, I, we shot a pilot. We sort of reshot the pilot. We ended up shooting seven episodes, but I got fired after three. And it was, it was a, you know, not a midlife crisis, a quarter-life crisis. It was just, it was a disaster. And it was like my, my biggest sort of um, meltdown moment of my career. Okay, that's great, because the first regular question I have after this thing about your routine was from the outside, and even to pod listeners, it seems, if not easy for you, then at least it's all really manageable. So what were the hard years for you? Well, that was one of the worst of it. So uh, the, the quick version of, of that couple of years is um, I, I was lucky to have um, two scripts I got paid to write, How to Eat Fried Worms and A Wrinkle in Time. Uh, neither of them went, but it sort of got me working as a professional writer. I wrote Go as a spec. We sold it uh, to a tiny company. We ended up selling it to a bigger company, to Sony, and making it. And it was a, a good experience, really a rough experience, like all scrappy indie movies, but a great experience. I got to be, I wasn't just on set every day. I was directing second unit. I was co-producing it. I was in the editorial process the whole time through. So that was great. But at the same time, um, I was like, oh, I want to do a TV show. I've always been the kind of person who's like, oh, someone else is having fun doing that thing. I want to do what they're I doing. I need to go there. Yeah. And so Kevin Williamson was doing Dawson's Creek. Uh, Felicity was on the air. And I was like, I want to do a show like that. I want to do a show for the WB. And so I set up the show at the WB. It was me and Dick Wolf. So he runs Law and & Order. And uh, so our agency partnered us up thinking like, oh, Dick Wolf has a lot of experience. John has a fresh young voice. And uh, it was the worst marriage of, of talent you could possibly imagine. And the real show should have been a documentary crew just following like Dick Wolf and I shouting at each other down hallways. That's awesome. Um, I ended up meeting a writer later on who was working on, on um, Law and Order, and she said she would sit in her office and just cringe at you know hearing us just going at each other because we would we would literally just shout down hallways. That's amazing because you know Derek has enjoyed such a great working experience. Absolutely, so I, 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 no, but it's all different. It's no, all, I mean, completely. I've worked with producers who I'd say like that's the biggest asshole in the world. And you might be like, no, 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 they were wonderful. It, it is so much um, completely about where you intersect at what point in your lives and what you each want. It is funny because as you get older, you have sympathy for, for other people and you also see things from their perspective. And so I would say like, yes. it was a war we both fought in. And like you sort of forget whose side uh, people were on. But I was completely unprepared to be running a TV show. Um, that's uh, the number one You were 30 one years old or something, yeah. right? Yeah. And so with no experience, I never staffed on a TV show. And so I'm supposed to be running this writing staff. We'd also set up this incredibly insane process where we were doing writing and editing in Los Angeles. Uh, we were shooting exteriors in D.C. every two weeks, but then shooting stages in Toronto so we could get afford. And so I'm flying in this triangle. It was crazy. And yeah. so I, that's, that's you know, I remember having these conversations with um, one of the executive producers, like the sort of directing executive producer. And he's talking at me, and I, I could see the whole thing from like 10 feet above my body. I was like, I was watching myself have this conversation because it wasn't in my body. Uh, it was truly a nervous breakdown. And so, wh- when you came when you came out of it, so Go is this incredible movie too. If people haven't seen it, you know, everyone of our generation knows that movie well and has seen the movie. And I'm sure college kids rediscover it all the time. But it is um, when I say you announced yourself. I mean, it it was a movie that really cut through. And um, I remember Dave and I went and saw that movie, and uh, Amy too, and 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 we're just. Um, blown away by the clarity of, of voice. And obviously it was directed by somebody who's gone on to become an incredibly successful director. And, you know, his first two movies were Swingers and, and Go, but it, it really is clearly your, your movie. So you come out of that, you're anointed mm-hmm. in Hollywood. You get this show, it doesn't go well. You get fired from your own show, which nightmarish scenario. But I was so relieved. Mostly, that's really what you felt. It was like a snow day. It's like a, it's like when like you realize like you haven't actually studied for the test, and then like the snow starts falling. It's like a huge blizzard. You're like, oh, this blizzard's terrible, but I don't have to go to school. And um, when I got off the flight from DC one time, and I turned on my phone, it was a 
and baby Kramer, my agent, called and said like, so they're firing you. I'm like, thank God. I, I can't believe I'm finally free of this. I felt so bad for my actor friends and writer friends who were sure. trapped on the show, but also like, oh my God, I'm free and I'm going to sleep for a week. But then when, when you landed, was there any emotional turmoil? Did you wonder if there was collateral damage or if you were in any way responsible for any of it? Did you immediately start figuring out how you do it differently? I immediately started thinking about how I wouldn't do it again and how I wouldn't do a TV show like that again. And if I were to do a TV show, I would build in much better guardrails around me so I wouldn't make the same mistakes again. I, I, de- I definitely, I think I recognized my own culpability, you know, in sort of what had happened. But I also just, you know, an avalanche was occurring. And so, like, me trying to get out of the way, the avalanche also made sense. At the time, you know, the thing you just said about Kevin Williamson, who'd made these great movies and all this stuff, and then was making this television, is, and, and you kind of, had, you know, you say you kind of had a kind of a FOMO moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you have the sense that that was a story you were born to tell? Do you need to have that sense? Like, I always feel like I, the difference for me in this show and, and the other two shows that Dave and I, we made a pilot once and then we um, made a, a series once. And um, the series was someone else that came to us and was like, here's a notion based on what I know you guys are good at. Whereas this really came from us. This was something, and I found throughout my career, the stuff that really, and we've talked about this stuff on a lot of email things together with a couple other screenwriters. For me, the craft only works well when it's some story I have to tell. Yeah. So I would say DC as a show, um, it was a show that I was I was really well qualified to tell, but I wasn't uniquely qualified to tell. And that's, right. that's a huge thing. difference. Yeah, someone else could have made that show. And the fact that, you know, you know, they partnered with Dick Wolf meant that it really couldn't be the story that I would want to tell anyway. He kept saying, like, you're trying to make, like, a New Yorker uh, short story. And, like, you know, it basically came down to, like, where's the body? He's uh, from such a procedural background that there wasn't a case of the week. And it's like, well, there's no case of the week. It's like five, you know, interns in D.C. Like, there's not going to be a case of the week. Um, so, yes, I think it was a bad job of choosing a project. And I think what I have learned over the course of, you know, 25 years writing is uh, – as something sort of enters my orbit, an idea or someone comes to me with something, I have to ask, uh, is this something that I'm uniquely well-qualified to do? And is this a, a project that will actually happen? Because so much of our job as a screenwriter, especially, is as a stock picker. I have to pick the things um, that suit me, but also the studio will make, and they'll be able to make properly. And it has to cross like a bunch of thresholds before it becomes a thing that I should really think about doing. So yeah, this might be for a long, long time, because you and I have been talking back and forth about this stuff for a long time with other people, this might be our biggest area of disagreement, yeah. right? Because I never once in my life have thought about, will this happen? Oh, yeah. I guess with Ocean's 13, I knew it would happen. Yeah. If we didn't, with Ocean's 13, I knew if Dave and I didn't fuck it up, mm-hmm. it was going to be a movie. And that if it wasn't a movie, I knew that if it didn't become a movie, it would be our fault. So I was aware going into it that we could only come out of it looking, we were yeah. either going to come out of it looking amazing or looking horrible. But I, otherwise, I never do that second. And it maybe you know you're you've had more commercial success. Um, uh, I've gotten a lot of movies made, but you've had more commercial success. And maybe part of it is sort of thinking um, about that second piece. But for me, I find thinking about that second piece disempowering somehow. I I don't feel like I, I feel like um I, that I I should have this sense that if I write it and I'm the only person, like you said, if Dave and I are the only people who can write it. Mm-hmm then I can manifest the thing and get it to the finish line. Yeah, I've, I've lost my ability to think that I can manifest things that are out of, out of my control. And so, you know, something like the book, like I could kind of manifest that because I sort of knew yeah. what was going to happen with that. And so I knew I could control everything about it. Um, but something like, an example would be Preacher. I worked for about two years on a movie adaptation of Preacher, which is a fantastic comic. I loved it so much. I was so excited to write it. Sam Mendes was going to direct it. And... Uh, it was at Sony, and it was just, I should have stepped back and said, like, they're not really going to make this. I mean, this is a hard R, you know, pickup truck Western. It's not the kind of thing that they really know how to do. And I am I should have realized that I'm chasing it because it's prestigious, and it feels a little bit out of my wheelhouse, and I want to show that I can write it. And I was so happy with, with what I wrote, but also... I think I knew in the back of my head like they're not going to make it. So yeah, those things would have th- those things would have stopped me. All right, the feeling like I was only doing it for those other reasons mm. would have stopped me from. I, I won't 
you know, all this is, uh, like you said, yeah. learned overall the time of the of doing this. But a while back, I realized the only reason to do it is because you want to wake up in the morning and work on the thing. Yeah. And if you if you don't have that, or if I don't have that, I all I am is another reasonably smart guy with skills trying to deploy those skills for other reasons, and I'm not working as an artist. I will say, though, sometimes, you know, Preacher being a good example, it's like, while it felt out of my wheelhouse, I was also really excited about the things I could bring to it and the, uh, the chance to explore new techniques and the chance to sort of really go into some different places. And, you know, so I was excited every day writing that script because there was just so many, there were so many cool potentials for things to do that were so different. Because I, I, I think if you're not writing a movie hoping to push movies forward a little bit and, and really explore new territory, then there's not a great reason to write movies. If you're not, you mean if you're not changing cinema somehow? If you're not reflecting something about why you're making this movie to this year with this set of um, assumptions then that you wouldn't have made three years ago, then it feels kind of pointless, um, which feels crazy to say because we both recognize you're trying to uh, push things forward in a medium that's essentially so conservative um, because studios will always make the safest choices they possibly can and will they'll be very excited in the room to say like, oh yes, let's do that. Let's reconceive this. And they will ultimately always backtrack and try to get down to the safest, lowest common denominator thing um, that they possibly can get away with. And that's the frustration of screenwriting, at least, at least for me in 2018. Right. And that's not something that's really at play on premium cable. Not a bit. It's exactly is, the opposite. There's there, the only limits to where we go with our show or what the, Dave and my imagination mm-hmm. and the imagination of our um, writers and, and actors. And that's it really. Yeah. And um, I see what you mean about the world of movies, though, though, and I don't want to jinx this, and I don't even believe in jinxes, uh, but there's a movie Dave and I wrote about 10 years ago that I've long thought is like our best screenplay that seems like it's about to get made. And it, 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 um, it never seemed like a particularly smart thing to do. It just seemed like a thing that we had to do. So you, you wait and it's painful and it's a very, fr- I think you're avoiding a lot of pain by calculating this stuff out. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if that, well, I wonder how you came to that sort of an analytic approach. Did you always have that? Cause like your own movies, the nines and go aren't like that at all. No. I'm sure your book isn't either. I mean, maybe your book is in that you understand where the market lives. I would say it's not conscious calculating. I think I recognize it instinctively when I look at why I'm passing on certain things or why I'm pursuing things or not pursuing things. I can sort of go back and retroactively say, like, okay, why am I making the choices I'm making? And I think it's because I recognize overall that movie's not going to happen. And then you track back and you see, like, okay, the things I passed on, which of those things actually got made or didn't get made? And I think my guesses were pretty accurate a lot of the times about um, which things really did have momentum and energy to them and which things were just going to stall out because either the people involved were not going to get along with it or it's that filmmaker who takes on like 15 projects and like none of them ever happen um so i think it's only going after the fact going back and looking at like okay why did i pass on the thing it's like oh yeah that was a good reason to pass on that right it's sort of the opposite of like eric heiser's incredible Mm -hmm. story right which is the other way which just comes bakes in a lot of different kinds of pain along the way but allows you the possibility of sort of like the amazing surprise so you look at like eric heiser's arrival it's fantastic he wrote a fantastic script uh they got exactly the right filmmaker it all happened but there's i would say nine out of ten times you roll the dice it wouldn't happen and so it's it's and i'm comfortable living in the 10 percent, and you're not uh, I think, like in yeah, general, okay, yeah. in life, right? I'm comfortable. I've always been comfortable living in the ten percent. Well, and it's, it's. I mean, are you really comfortable though? Because you recognize, you know, you just talked about this script that you're happy it's going to finally get made. Um, that means ninety percent of work you do will never get seen. It'll exist forever on a shelf in Twelve Point Courier, and that's probably the reason you're doing a TV show, so that the reason that the things you're writing actually exist in the world. Yeah, but Dave and I were thinking about this. About 50% of the things we've written that were origi- that were mm-hmm. our things yeah. have gotten made. Or an adaptation we chased or our own... Well, that's a really high batting average. Originals, so that, maybe great. it's 45% yeah. or something. Great. Like It's close. If this gets made, it'll be yeah. 50%, I think. Yeah. But 
I, I, yes, it's pain. No, it's, it's painful. I don't know that I'm living in the, the lie to myself is I don't know I'm living in the 10%. Yeah. yeah. And there were years that it was, I mean, it was brutal, you know, um, knowing you want to get something made, knowing you're taking, it's taking time or it's, um, unlikely, but also if I think about girlfriend experience or I smile back or solitary man or these movies that were small movies we made, Mm -hmm. I was also comfortable taking the screenwriter money and living off of it while I made small movies and was sort of flirting with, um, oblivion. Which goes to the question of, do you think of yourself as an artist or a craftsman? I think Does it I, matter? Um, I think I'm, a, I'm an artist who is also happy to do craft and not feel shame about it. And so I think the craftsman part of, of a job, we should define this, is you know sometimes you just come in and like they say, like we really need a new cabinet over here. We need some cupboards. We need some shelves. I'm like, I know how to do that, and I know exactly what you need. Here's what you don't understand about this is a load-bearing wall. And so if I try to take this down, it's all going to collapse. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and that part of craftsmanship, I think, is really crucial. Um, I love, you know, let me extend the metaphor further. Please I love, go. It's a great metaphor. I love the show This Old House. And what I love so much about This Old House is you have these people who are so good at their specific jobs. Like Rich Chathui, like knows how all the stuff works in terms of plumbing. Or Norm Abrams can like, build you anything. And they understand both how to build something perfect and beautiful, but also what needs to actually happen in order for the building to work properly. And so when I come in to like, as a craftsman to do that job, I know how to do that. But realistically, they're hiring me for my ability to build that cabinet, but also to deal with the crazy homeowners and to deal with the building inspectors. Sure. Because so much of our job when we come in on those situations is there are some very difficult personalities involved and they are nervous and they are scared. And you are a person who can like, sit them down, calm them down, get them to focus on the right thing. And you know, get them through to that next step. But if you're asked to build that cabinet on in a shitty house, yep, or in a house that looks beautiful from the outside, but you know it's um, there are termites, mm-hmm. and you tell them, and yep. they go, "Yeah, that's fine. We know there are termites. We only need this house to be up for the next six months, right?" And yeah. and we've I've taken um, again, we both have now done this for a really yeah. long time. So the lesson I eventually, for me, the thing I took from that was I don't. It, that's the thing that makes me feel disempowered. And more than that, that makes me feel not like an artist in a way that I can't tolerate when I turn on the computer. So I stop doing that. You don't get that feeling? Oh, I totally get that feeling. So I don't, oh, okay. I don't, I don't, I don't do those jobs. And so in general... But you, you have, like I, I, I have. I have done those jobs. And there's been times where I've come in for a week or two on a movie that I never end up seeing. Like it just, it comes out and it's like, Oh, I worked on that. Like I've seen like, the TV. They're like crazy. Me too. Yeah. They're, they're like wow, Jessica Alba's in that movie. Like I, I don't realize we have anything in, in common. Uh, so yes, there's been a couple times where I've done that. And sometimes I'm doing that as a favor for a filmmaker friend or some other producer or somebody else who needs me to help out there a little bit. And that's great. And there's a reason. So why that's how you can put the human. That's how you can put your human, heart into a it. human connection there because like there's a reason why I needed to come and do that little thing. And um, and yes, I was paid well for it, but it was I was doing it for. A friend, the same way that you and I have both gone and seen like cuts of our friends' films, and like all the you're, time, you're giving them helpful suggestions. That's not a week of your life rewriting stuff for them, um, but sometimes you do that too. Sure, but doing that. So you also though did make a decision at a certain point because what happens when you write those movies early in your career? You get offered a bunch of stuff, oh, you yeah. take those jobs, and then some people thrive in those jobs. Yeah. Some people decide they don't want to do them. So at a certain point, you were like. Uh, I'd prefer not to do that anymore. Yeah, when you, when you're you know back to back on one week, two week, three week jobs, and you're just always in, in that sort of churn place, and then it becomes a bunch of phone calls. It becomes a bunch of like, uh, hey, this person has a tiny thing about on page fifteen fifty three, and so over the last few years, I've done a lot less of that, and it's been situations where um, if a movie's in production, I know the people involved. It's a thing I can really do. I'll happily do it. But I'll also have a conversation from the start saying like, listen, I know you think it's this section. If you can just give me one more day, just do a pass through so all these things actually fit together so that it feels like one continuous thought rather than just like, sure. here's, a, here's a new set of cabinets that are in like a Greek style versus the rest of the house is in a you know Tudor style. Just let me put, make everything a, a Greek style. I'm happy to do it. There was a movie they were spending $200 million on and the head of, and we got this call, like they really need you to give them four weeks. Yeah. And we said we can't make it good in the, for a variety of reasons, we can't make it good. So we can't take the jobs. And yeah. then the head of the whole studio, not just the president, but like the head of the whole studio calls us. And they said, um, 
I hear you're considering doing this. We would love you to. And we said, we can't make it good. Yeah. And they said, can you make it something I can shoot? Mm. And we said, I, I, I think so, but we can't make it good. It won't be a good movie. And they said, I really need you to do this. Yeah. And we did it. And that, the movie was terrible. It was four weeks. We were paid a fortune. And I, something changed in me after that, <laughs> related to that work. I, I just had to stop basically but I've doing actually, it. I've actually had some Unless good, I love it. I've had some good experiences doing stuff like that where it was just, there, there was a script that they sent and they basically said like, we have like three days before we start shooting. It just doesn't feel right. And so I read through the script and what you can tell is that uh, it's been rewritten so many times that like basically it just doesn't read it well. It doesn't have a voice. It has no voice and it just doesn't read well. And so honestly, I, I could spend those two days just kind of rewriting all the sentences, the scene description, so it just reads like one thing. And so suddenly people are reading this again, and they're reading it like a new script because all those weird stuff is just, I've just taken off all the weird hobbledy-jobbledy language. That makes total sense to me. I can see that being actually really satisfying yeah. to do because you're using your, your skills yeah. to sort of like iron the thing exactly. in, in a way, and suddenly they're, it's... It's beautiful and pressed in it. Yeah, it's like, oh, that, hey. Yeah. And sometimes people, you know, they actually have a pretty good script. They just have forgotten or they've forgotten that things are funny. They've forgotten sort of what works. And so just like the, the small tweaks you make just make. And you like that. You enjoy doing that. I enjoy doing that every once in a while. And so I did it too much of it for, you know, a couple of years and I really stepped away from it. Do you it. get the same satisfactions out of that that you do out of the nines go? No, um, some original. And then I'll ask you about Tim Burton separately, yeah. but go and and even script notes or yeah. writing your book. Well, there is a sense, I'll say that if you see something wrong in the world, I definitely want to fix it. And so if I see something that's incorrect or like just isn't as good as it can be, I'm the person who wants to fix it. And so if I can make that movie a little bit better, uh, it's just better for the universe for that movie to be slightly smarter, slightly more logical how things fit together. So that sense of wanting to be able to fix things, I think is inherent and is, is behind a lot of that stuff but it's not an expression of an original idea it's not like oh i wish this movie existed in the world and so therefore i will write the movie that i wish i could see which is usually my good advice for people as they're thinking about projects to write is like what movie do you want to see write that movie all right i have one question for all of the i'm gonna listen to a podcast to help me fall asleep people are you struggling to get some shut eye I hate when I'm struggling to get shut eye. I hate it when I can't fall asleep. Listen, if you answered yes, you're in luck because we have a great tip for how you can zonk out more easily. Mattress Firm, America's neighborhood mattress store, lets your budget stretch further when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. They are more than mattress experts. They have the whole package that helps you transform your mattress into a bed from adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor. They have you covered, literally, and figuratively. Go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to see what deals are happening right now as I read this sentence to you. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Look, I value my sleep because uh, I have limited time. I'm a writer, primarily, a uh, storyteller, and if I am sleepy, if I haven't gotten enough sleep, I find it really hard to stay focused and concentrate. But when I have a good night's sleep, it becomes much, much easier. Again, go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to learn how your sleeping could be monumentally improved. What do you do for idea generation? So not, not the Stephen King, where do you get your ideas yeah. question. But, you know, I found, when I found Morning Pages, it was a great sort of repository for... Mm -hmm whatever the ideas were to start showing up, it would allow my subconscious to work and then eventually these notions would come out. And so sometimes you're just, you are riding your bike or running and like you gotta stop because the whole thing came to you. But but do you have any process by, because you have ideas for all sorts of areas of the yeah. world that you've enacted, and made manifest, even though you say you've given up on your yeah. ability to think you can make things manifest, but you obviously are amazing at it. Um, but what, uh, how do you, what's your process to catch the ideas? You know, I'm not sitting down to sort of like, okay, now I'm going to just like brainstorm. Very rarely do I have moments where it's like, okay, I need to brainstorm like what I'm going to write or, or even kind of how I'm going to do that. But I do have to definitely catch when they, they sort of come at me. And so uh, in the bathroom, I have just a notebook. And it'll usually be like the, uh, 
the cheapest, silliest notebook possible so it doesn't feel too pretentious. So like, I'll have like a Britney Spears notebook. And uh, if something comes to me, you know, in the middle of the night or it's usually as I'm trying to fall asleep, and it's like, I'll assess like, is that actually a pretty good idea? If it is, if it's the kind of idea that's going to keep me up for like five minutes, then I will go in and I'll write it down. And I'll say, okay, this is a thing. And, and I'll, I'll sort of chart it all out. Um, but I don't have a conscious process for every day I'm going to do this thing. I don't have the morning pages thing. I've tried doing morning pages. It doesn't really, uh, it never really stuck with me. Uh, but I will, you know, generally ideas are competing for attention in my head. And if those ideas are there long enough, sometimes I'll draft other friends to like, if we gang up together, then like John will pay more attention to us. Sure. And eventually when that stuff becomes just so overwhelming, I'm like, okay, I will write you down. I will figure out how to do this stuff. So you've trained yourself to sort of like almost ignore the initial burst of the idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then see how it see how it grows. Yeah. And you'll like kind of noodle on it when you're driving around? Absolutely. When I'm driving around, when I'm walking the dog, obviously in the shower, um, you know, just when the time comes. But also I have to very consciously, like if I'm trying to fall asleep at night, I, I won't let myself think of that idea because I know it'll just like, it'll take up all the cycles and it won't happen. So I tend to try to find um, what I call a good boring book for bedtime. So some like Nonfiction book about like the greatest disasters of American history, or so you'll read. You read before bed. I'll read before bed. You don't watch before bed. No, at a certain time. After you know, after like ten, ten thirty, screens off. All screen. All screens. And you're not going on Twitter then either. No, 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 no. Do you regulate your Twitter hours? I try not. I try not to be on Twitter after about six p.m. Um, if possible. So like, you know, when I come in from work, I'll try to. I'll try to get off Twitter. I don't even understand the level of discipline you have. It's incredible. Um, I can't, I mean, I can go off Twitter for days, uh-huh. but I have to then, it's all binary. I have to just like flip the switch then and I'm, you're fully back gone in. or I'm back in. Yeah. Part of it was this last year living in Paris, um, because of the time difference, Twitter was just bizarre to me. So I'd wake up in the morning and like half a day would have passed. Like, and you, if you scroll at the top of your Twitter, like, wait, how did we get to this point? And you have to keep scrolling <laughs> back. Like what <laughs> happened that we're yeah. here? Cause like, yeah. I'm, I'm watching the beam go through like, you know, 15 iterations. Like what happened? Um, so That's now at least I'm, I, I'm closer to the time, but like, I, I won't do it. I do find like, I listen to the daily podcast, the New York times, which I think is phenomenal. And that will tend to be my synthesis of like, what's going on in the world and what should I be outraged about. But I, I listen to that, like while I'm walking the dog and then I'm sort of done with the news for the day. You'll do that in the morning. In the morning. Right. Yeah. And then you can, you can breathe it out. You can be done with it. Well, I can breathe it out because like, I'm listening to it like while I'm walking my dog and then I'm unleashing the dog and then I'm, I'm in the house and it. It just sort of stops. I, I stop thinking about the news. Do you exercise? I do. So I, um, I started running last year, which was great. And so Paris, in Paris, in Paris, it's amazing. So you're running I've along run the river. It. Yeah. But I still keep running while I'm in Los Angeles. So I'll try to run mm, ten miles, fifteen miles a week. It's not a lot, not a ton, but enough. And uh, are you listening good. to stuff when you're running? I am listening. To, I'm, I'm listening to podcasts the entire time. That's what you do. Yeah. Um, which podcast do you listen to? I listen to. A lot. I listen to a lot of the Slate podcasts, uh, Slate Gabfest, Slate uh, Culture Gabfest, Political Gabfest. Um, there's some good comedy podcasts I listen to. I listen to Script Notes, which seems crazy. I'm listening to my own show, but it's it's. I get much better, I think, speaking on the show, hearing my own voice, and hearing how it all comes out. So I listen to that show. I've listened to your show. Um, so yeah, just yeah. things that are interesting to me. And um, so speaking of that notion of um, listening to your show to figure out how to do it better. When did you realize you had a special um, ability to communicate? Meaning, um, the, you know, written word or, you know, convincing people. Like how, when your childhood, were you known as the smart kid? Were you able to communicate in a powerful and different way at, a, at an early age? I could write pretty well, pretty young. I, I, I was writing a few levels, grade levels above where my peers were. And I was only an okay reader. I wasn't like a phenomenal reader. I wasn't one of the voracious ones. But for whatever reason, I'd started writing, and I would just, I would just write a lot. And I remember what city? Boulder, Colorado. Right. Born and raised. And I remember in third grade, we had to write a story about um, a, a child. And so I wrote about this kid who lived in France. And so uh, he would say "we," oui, but I didn't understand that "we" oui was O U I. So I said "we oui, we" oui, the W E E. Great, awesome. Um, but it was just weird that I was thinking about like you know a kid who lives in France. I, I was always. Um, I think perceiving myself as a character in a story, um, which I think is a very useful. Did you feel like an outsider? Not a huge outsider. I, mean, I was I was a gay kid. I always sort of knew I was a gay kid. Um, so there's inevitably a 
some outsider and a writer too when yeah. boulder is a place where people are very physical physically active. yeah but boulder's I mean, also very it's a college town yes, it's an intellectual sure. town too so um and it was i was very outdoorsy i was in boy scouts and so we were out in the woods all the time and so i had a really sort of fantastical childhood like you know you know it was hard to imagine a better place to grow up really than boulder was so i didn't have like huge crises on that level but i always envied I think characters in books who did have crises. I was always looking for the characters who had to run away because of huge adversity, or who somehow like went through a fantastical portal. Into Were you recognized world. for having a, a big imagination back yeah, then? I was, and I was happy to be in my room with the door shut and imagining that I was someplace else. My bed was always a boat. I was always in a James Bond movie. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I'd be organizing my toys to in these big campaigns of like you know sort of laugh Olympic style battles between. Uh, all my toys. Would your parents expose you to like movies and books and all that stuff? We didn't go out to the movies a ton. Um, we watched a lot of TV, I think like most families in the 70s. Uh, we went to the Boulder Dinner Theater, which is where I saw awesome. my Broadway shows. I was in the Boulder Dinner Theater production of Fiddler on the Roof um, when I was in fourth grade, I guess. I played a little yeshiva boy. I, I had no idea what, who Jewish, what course, Jewish people yeah. were. So, um, But it was a, you know, I was always allowed to just be by myself imagining your stuff. parents allowed that absolutely and when i would write stuff my mom would always read it and she'd proofread it but also tell me that it was good so i think there's always been an aspect of you like, that kind of support at home yeah i was always, always like you know writing to please my my parents and w how were you perceived at school um smart i mean i, I was i was always you had friends i had good friends I had, I had a few good close friends um i you know junior high i think like as for most kids you could be the most popular kid in junior high and you're still kind of an outsider loser because that's just the nature of being that age. But it was good and it was fine. I had scouts in addition to school, so I had like two sort of institutional organizations to belong to. Um, I was a patrol leader. I wasn't a particularly good leader leader. I wasn't, that wasn't a driving focus. But... And if I would have asked you then as you were leaving high school, let's yeah. say, what success would look like in life, what would you have answered? What were you thinking about? Writing, and I wouldn't have known what kind of writing. I think I'd always thought about books. I didn't know that movies were written until college, which seems crazy. But uh, I've heard you say that before, but what do you mean? What did it, you assume, that the, 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 the actors were making it up? No, I assumed that the director did it. I just, I, and I guess I would see a writing credit, but I didn't know what a screenplay was. So it wasn't until I read Steven Soderbergh's script for Sex, Lives, and Videotape that I realized that... book that, is an amazing Yeah, so it's a production thing. journal and the script. And so... I got that, and I read the production journal, and I read the script, and I'm, I'm like, wait. And so then I got the tape, and I was watching the tape of it along with reading the script. I'm like, everything they're saying is written down here, and the things they're doing, too, um, which seems so naive. But this is pre-internet. This is before it was easy to find those scripts. So you would have thought, oh, I'm going to go, because I want to ask you about the demystifying of the process for other people, yeah. but I'm getting to the heart of why. Uh, I can hear why already. But what, um, so you would have thought, oh, I want to be a writer. And then you went off to Drake. I went off to Drake. And then ended up at the producing program at Stark at USC. USC. Yeah. And so how did that how did that happen? And what was in your head at that time? As because by the end of college, you knew people wrote screenplays. Yep. And I wanted to do that. So you went to the producing program knowing you wanted to be a screenwriter. Why? Yeah. So filling in a few dots here. So I went to school for journalism. So uh, studied news writing, but really advertising was the focus. And I think advertising is probably the closest corollary to kind of what we do as screenwriters, at least that I could find there. Um, while I was at Drake, I sort of found out, oh, there's such a thing as screenwriting. Um, I applied to a summer program at Stanford. So I drove out to Stanford and learned how to you know, shoot film and cut film and do, it was a really documentary program, but I learned what film was. And then I applied to and I got into USC for film school and the Stark program. And I chose Stark, which is a producer's program, I think partly because I didn't necessarily want to believe that I could really write movies. And I also wanted the broader perspective of it all i wanted to know how the whole thing worked i've always been sort of a let me let me see what the system is like and so the stark is a really good program for showing you what the system of a thing is like there's only 25 students per year uh, you take all your classes together but you're covering everything from you know budgeting to scheduling to script development you know on set producing you're shooting you're editing you're doing all of the stuff who is in your program with you Everybody. So, Scott Silver or no? No. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, let me back through it. So Al Goff and Miles Miller, who became TV writers. They did Smallville. Yes. Um, David Kramer, my agent, was two years ahead of us. But uh, Ashley Kramer, who became his wife, was in my year. 
Um, we had a bunch of other sort of screenwriters, but John Glickman, who's now runs MGM, was in the program. Uh, it was a, a crazy, crazy group. And while we were in that group, we were super competitive with each other, and like chairs were thrown. It was it was it was it was intense, but it was also great because we were also helping each other out, and so we all came into the industry at a time where it was really just growing. So there was a spot kind of for all of us and we could help each other out. We could just call each other up and get information. And on then such. did you write go on spec as I did. you at Stark or when you left? I uh, started at Stark. And so Jim Whitaker, who was also in my program, who um, is now a producer, he used to be imagined now uh, produces over at Disney. Uh, he was looking for something to direct. So I wrote a little short film for him to direct. And that is the first section of go. And so, the short film was called X. It had all the characters. It was really just the first third of that movie. And uh, he never did it. And so I went and just wrote the rest of it. And so it has the structure it has because I wrote it as a short film. And the only you way... Mean you didn't mean to have the time double back on itself. That You weren't trying to do something that was narratively fucked up as your first nope. thing. It just happened that way. It happened. And so like, there's Mystery Train and other things that done that sort of restarting. But uh, if, you know, if Pulp Fiction hadn't come out and it hadn't become like acceptable to try to, to do that kind of, you know, let's jump back and, and restart the whole thing. But Pulp Fiction came out in 94 and your movie came out in 99, right? When did you, when did you write it? I started writing it in 93. Right. So yeah. when Pulp, when you saw Pulp Fiction, did it worry you or were you happy about it? I was happy about it because it meant that it was like, it was acceptable to do this. Like people wouldn't just be like, right. it, was, it was, it was a good thing. So it's been frustrating that like, the movie gets, my movie gets compared to Pulp Fiction a lot because other than the time jumping, it has kind of nothing in, in common with Pulp Fiction. I mean, the the um, the way some the repartee, I think, okay. is of a time, right? Yeah, it doesn't feel like you were in any. I mean, like I say, I love that movie and I love that screenplay, but I do think you and Quentin were both guys living in L.A. at mm-hmm. a certain time, and there was just there is a rhythm of the way that people talk. Yeah, I, but I would say the the characters in my movie are maybe they're aspiring to kind of be in a Tarantino movie, but they're they're essentially they're fundamentally uh, people way out of their depths, uh, just moving forward. And there's a re- realism there that I think is not a Tarantino thing. They're not living in this heightened universe of a Tarantino movie. Sure. Yeah. Listen. I mean, everyone got everybody got um, compared mm-hmm. to Quentin for a long oh, yeah. time. And so I'm sure that was frustrating. Like yeah. I can understand the frustrations of that. It happened to yeah. me too at times, not with rounders, but with um, knockout guys. And it's just like, well, yeah. my view on it was, um, un- unfortunately or fortunately, once Uma drew that rectangle on the screen, anything that came after it was either going to be, you were in reaction to it for 10 years, awesome. whether you were defying it or whether you were getting in line with it. If you were writing a thing that had a crime elements and young people, he just said, "Look, this is my turf now," mm-hmm. and and it was. A, I don't think he, he wasn't saying. You no, know, I'm like, saying yeah, that's the. the was, yeah. I think the yeah. mo- well, in that Harold Bloom kind of. I think the movie is such a great piece of art, and Pulp Fiction is such a towering achievement yeah. that it just it just hung over the yeah. next ten years, and so go get sort of just put under that umbrella, even though your intention, the purpose or the mission of all those characters mm-hmm. is quite different. It's interesting you bring up uh, Pulp Fiction because uh, working on this book, uh, Harry Potter is the equivalent of, mm. of that for this. Yeah, sure. Harry Potter really defines sort of like what middle grade fiction, uh, middle grade fantasy fiction can be, should be, could be. And so you're always going to compare it to Harry Potter. So I have a story about a 12 year old boy. Uh, everyone says like, oh, like Harry Potter. And so it's useful for me to be able to say, yes, like Harry Potter. It's in the same general space as that. But that doesn't mean it's the same thing, and that's the frustration. But there, yeah, not, I'm sure that is frustrating. I mean, um, my all four members of my family are really good friends with Soma and Shanini, who's yes, uh, School for Good and Evil, and obviously had to deal with that also. But somehow, the, you know, the, the eventually the books will speak for themselves, mm-hmm. as Soman's books yeah. have, as I'm sure yours will. What made you want to write it? You know, growing up in Boulder, Colorado, I had all this experience of you know being a little kid tromping around the woods in scouts. And, you know, it was a very specific place in time I've just never seen in in books before. And it was really special to me. At the same time I was being a scout running around those woods, I was also reading all this fantasy literature. So I was reading Chronicles of Narnia, um, The Hobbit. And I wanted to take those two things I loved so much and 
put them together. And so for a long time, I had this idea of like who this character was and what this world was, but I didn't know if it was a movie or if it was a TV show or what it was. And then I was on a phone call in Austin, Texas, um, two years ago. It was like October 30th. And this, I was on a phone call with this guy who'd written a middle grade fiction book um, called The Nest. His name is Kenneth Opal. And they'd sent me the book to see if I wanted to adapt it. And it was, it was a maybe for me. And I was, we were sort of feeling each other out, like, is this going to be a good fit? And so he was talking to me about the book. And I was asking him, like, about the characters and the age of the characters. And he explained, like, what middle grade fiction was. And middle grade fiction is essentially stories that have a 8 to 12-year-old protagonist who's going on a journey. And that's kind of the edges of it. Like, there's not, there's, there's very little else that specifically has to happen in middle grade fiction. There, there's basically not going to be romance or kissing. There's not going to be sex or anything like that, obviously. But it can kind of be anything else beyond that. So Stranger Things, if it were a book, would be middle grade fiction. Or a lot of the movies we love would be middle grade fiction if they were... Um, if they were books. And so I was like, oh, this idea I have, that's actually a middle grade book. Like, that's how I should be thinking about this. And so that night I started writing. I wrote the first chapter and that's still the first chapter in the book. Oh, you started writing it at night. So that yeah. actually bothered you enough that you had to go write at night. I absolutely did. I Not did. during the day. You actually had to go do it. And I wouldn't have done it except that, so this is during the Austin You were in Austin. Festival. I was in Austin. I was there for the film festival. I was a huge storm, so I couldn't leave the room. And so it's like, all right, I'll, I'll, just, I'll do it. I'll order some room service and write this. Do you still go to hotels to write as you were doing for a while? I used to, and I still will do it sometimes. So often if I'm starting a new movie project, I'll go to some city and barricade myself in a room for four or five days and just hand write scenes. And I'll do that so I can kind of break the back of the story. Because I feel like once I have 40, 50, 60 pages of a script done, I will finish the script. But before that, it's much harder. And the reason why yes. I will hand write is because... If I'm typing it, I'll keep going back and revising and revising and revising, and I won't actually make forward progress. And so handwriting forces me to actually just write a bunch of scenes. I'll skip around throughout just to get a sense of like how the whole thing feels. And I, I used to, this is dating me, but I used to fax the pages back to my assistant to type up. Your now. handwriting is such that you it could go through a fax machine and still be readable and it, transcribable. So here's the process. I'm for sick me. with jealousy over here's that. Here's the process for me when I'm doing that kind of thing. So. I'll take a sheet of paper and fold it into quarters, and then I'll sit quietly, and I'll, I will loop the scene in my head. And by looping, I mean you're visualizing, you're sort of hearing the characters start to talk. Once I have that figured out, I'll quickly scribble it down. So that's my scribble draft. And then I'll write a proper version. And that's good enough handwriting that my assistant can read what it is. And she'll you know put brackets around things so she's not sure what I'm saying. But I will originally fax or now just photograph and, and send through the pages to my assistant who will type it up. And so when I come back from one of those trips, I'll have, you know, 50 pages of the script done. And that's huge. That really helps me get started on things. And just, we have a few more minutes. So I just want to ask a couple of questions. You know, um, a guy we're both friends with um, recently asked this question. Uh, he's a gay man. And he mm -hmm. recently asked this question about whether it's hard or whether being gay in Hollywood and wanting to be a screenwriter is more challenging. And he was making the point that he believes that it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just wondering how you how that lands for you, whether you were always out in Hollywood and and uh, whether before you became really like once you're really successful, success in Hollywood is a great equalizer. Yeah. Yep. Once, but before you were really successful, did you feel it was something that you had to deal with in the rooms when you would go and pitch for something, or someone would meet you after you'd first written something, liked what you'd written? How did it? How did you deal with it? How was it a factor? Yeah. I've always been a person who tries to out myself pretty quickly in a conversation with a new person because just so it doesn't become a thing later on that we don't talk about. So now that I'm married, I can say like my husband, blah, 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 blah. And that just easily makes it, makes it happen. Otherwise, it's challenging to sort of get it out there and then it becomes a thing. And you would want to, to avoid anyone saying anything that would make it weird? Later? Exactly. Because you don't feel like you're um, overtly fit the stereotypes of a gay man? That, that's, heard, that, I mean, I've heard you say that in private. Yeah, like, yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And so some people just won't read me as gay. And if they don't read me as gay, then they're just not sure what to do with it. And so uh, I've had situations where, like, you know, three months into knowing somebody, it's like, oh, what does your wife do? I'm like, wow, you, you really missed out on a lot here. It happened on the, a TV show I did, uh, a pilot I shot for ABC. And I just, I'd never, I thought I'd sort of come out to people, folks and really hadn't. And so um, my now husband, but then boyfriend came to visit me on set. And 
one of the actors and the director were all just kind of like a little bit weirded out. And it, it wasn't they were, were like homophobic or anything, but they they just had not put it they all together. Connected the whole no, thing. No, and so. And so, but, but how has it affected you in Hollywood, or how I don't, is it? I don't think it's affected me as particularly neg- negatively. Like, uh, you know, I've worked with all the same people, and the people who I think wouldn't hire me, I don't think it would have been a great fit anyway. But I think our mutual friend who has this concern, I think it is a valid concern in the sense that, like, you know, if you are a more effeminate guy who is going in for certain things, that could be an issue. And Well, he describes himself as flaming, meaning yes. he's he is... He's overtly gay and writes about gay subject matter and is wants. It's a real um, yes. overt and outward part of how he manifests himself as an artist and a yeah. person. And so, to what degree it's the challenge is his material versus the challenge is him? It's hard to suss out. Um, I'll say there's not a lot of feature jobs out there. It doesn't feel like feature jobs are you know the same thing they used to be. Feature jobs, there's not a huge number of them. So unless you are going after a job that specifically has you know. That skill set, it's hard. But I will say that for our mutual friend, there's going to be some show out there that will want him for his unique voice. Uh, but I don't know. It's, it's frustrating because here's the thing about being gay: it's like being an invisible minority, and like you, you don't. It's not clear. There's not a big purple sign over your head saying like, "Oh, this is the person you want to hire for this thing. This is a diversity hire. This is a, a person who will broaden the experience of your show." Do you think that um, gay people should be diversity hires? I don't know. Um, I remember. You know, got 10 years ago, I was at some WJ meeting and they said, like, oh, we need to form a, you know, uh, a gay writers um, a committee to talk about sort of issues for gay writers. I'm like, great. Uh, but I'll tell you, like, I've not had situations I feel like that's a huge disadvantage. I mean, it's, it's, it's only my experience. And I, I just want to say flaming isn't a word I would use. That was a word our friend used. Yes, he was yeah. describing himself to us. So yeah. I'm putting it in his uh, in his language, just but, saying well, in his way. But I would also stress is like, you know, my experience as, um, you know, sort of gay white man, there's like so many uh, privileges and, and, and uh, you know, things I got for free that are so easy that it's hard for me to then um, say like, oh, that should be other people's experiences. Going because through. also wealth is a great separator and divider. Yes. And you've been a rich white man. Yeah. You've been a rich white person for a very long time. Yeah. And since you were very young, because when we're young, both of us, the first, the money on our first couple screenplays was so life is such yeah. a life changing thing as a young person mm-hmm. that it's that's another separator. You can float in a certain way yeah. and not see certain realities. Another crucial part of my sort of work bio, which I think tends to get skipped over, is I did the two Charlie's Angels movies, and like Charlie's Angels is a perfect movie for like a gay white man of my age to have been writing, and so uh, that was a huge success, and it sort of it branded me in a way that was really helpful. So even though I don't talk about that, it's like a big thing. That was a really big thing for me. That was the first time I was being able to uh, use what I particularly loved about Charlie's Angels as a gay guy um, and bring it to the screen and have it be successful. So that was, I think, what sort of broke me as a writer, even more so than Go. Yeah, you know, it's um, even though that was, in a way, the biggest commercial success, mm-hmm. I guess some of the Tim Burton movies have been gigantic yeah. success also. Um, on your own Twitter bio, you just have Go and Big Fish. Yeah. Those are those the ones. If someone wants to understand John August as a, an artist in a way, are those and the new and the book, I guess, yeah. are those the three things? Those are probably the three things. Like it's where I started, sort of the middle point, and sort of where I'm at now. Um, are, are you going to make a movie out of this? We'll see. So, right when I first sold the proposal for it, uh, a bunch of studios sort of came after it, and like the book wasn't even written, so I said like hold off, and so that we put everything on sort of lockdown. All the PDFs were watermarked. We kept it secret for quite a long time. But once we went out to foreign rights, like they immediately got it. And so then we started getting calls again, like, hey, do you want to make this sure. into a movie? Um, you and I both know that if the books are eh, successful, they'll never make the movie. If the books are hugely successful, they'll try to make a movie. And so at this point, we'll see how the books do. If the books are just okay, great. I'm so happy they're going to be books. If the books are a huge hit, then we'll figure out the right way to make the movie. But you and I both know that like, I could be burning years of my life and creative energy for sure. trying to write scripts for movies that will never happen. Well, if it goes the way the rest of your life has, there'll be huge hits and we'll make the movies and we'll all get to see them. John, thanks for doing this. Brian, um, a pleasure. Great to have you on here. You can find John August on Twitter at... John August. You can buy the new book, which is called... Arlo Finch in the Valley of Fire. In all your bookstores and on Amazon. Just order it right now for the kid in your life, the middle grader in your life. And listen to... 
Script Notes, mm-hmm. uh, a terrific podcast hosted by these guys. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter, and uh, you can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. If you have anything you want to say, do not. I stopped saying the warning, don't pitch me ideas, don't send me screenplays, don't send me uh, anything having to do with work product. I stopped saying it, and then suddenly people started doing it again. So don't. I can't even open your email in that case. Can I plug one more thing? Plug anything you want. Uh, so I have another podcast called Launch, which is just about the process of launching the book. And so right when I had that first phone call with Kenneth Opal in the hotel room in Texas, I started recording all those interviews. And so Launch is a six-episode series that tracks the whole process of the book. So your listeners are probably big uh, writing fans. This is everything. It They're big to process it. fans. So yeah, get so in there the and um, listen to Launch. I'm going to listen to Launch. I haven't, I haven't listened to that one. Oh, you'll like it. I've listened to a lot of script notes, but I haven't listened to that one. All right. Thanks, everybody, and uh, go find John August's stuff places. Bye.